Hello and welcome to another broadcast of the Spectator Americano podcast. I'm joined today by Kurt Mills, who is a Spectator USA contributor and also covers the White House for the national interest. And we are in a hotel in Washington, D.C., and we're going to be talking about Trump's serious strikes. So, Kurt, let's start with the first question. Why do you think Donald Trump launched missiles at Syria? Why do you think France and America have launched missiles at Syria? Why do you think Britain is involved? I think there was considerable foreign policy establishment consensus and pressure that this is the right thing to do. The norm against chemical weapons use is one of the strongest norms and one of the most agreed upon norms among the Western powers. That being said, I think that the president is also quite fond of and deferential to military advice and shows of military force. And then additionally, this is right out of the playbook of new national security advisor to the president, John Bolton, who's often conflated with being a neoconservative. He's quite friendly with many of them and sort of an ideological fellow traveler, but he is not one. He is a nationalist, dare I say, uber hawk. Mm-hmm. Um, and his view on this kind of thing is, is very much what we did on Saturday morning, which is because uh, that's an important stuff for yeah. British listeners to understand. That's important. That Bolton arrives, and how many days it is? It to... is. Uh, it's the chemical attack occurred on, I believe, uh, Saturday the seventh, yeah. and Bolton showed up for his first day on Monday the ninth, and by eleven in the morning, he had already had two meetings on Syria. Yes. So the timing couldn't have been more comically preposterous. Bolton is is hired. And then a chemical attack happens in Syria, and then a fresh foreign policy crisis for him to dive in on day yes. one. You're not saying that that would be the only factor. You just think that it could have Bol- been decisive. Bolton is, Bolton Bolton is very decisive. close to the president. That being said, Bolton has disagreements with the president, and the president is his own man. So I, I don't want to frame it as now the president is just taking Bolton's advice. But mm. I mean, Trump struck Syria last year with a basically wholly different national security team, with the exception of, of course, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. Mm. So, but in a year, the Secretary of State is different, the National Security Advisor is different, and a lot of the principles of the National Security Council are different as well. So there's a tendency, I think, a lot of times to really emphasize these advisors, and they are hugely important. Mm. But at the end of the day, the President of the United States is the President of the United States, and he is in charge, and he clearly has some interest in striking Assad when he is implicated in this kind of thing. And tell us a bit about Mattis's involvement here and what, I mean, I think there's a sort of assumption that he's one of the quote-unquote grown-ups in the media. Yeah. And that he would have been perhaps less less automatically hawkish than someone like Bolton. Right, I mean, I think the, the grown-ups narrative is laughable. Yeah. That being said, what that narrative is for your listeners over in the UK is that there is this coterie or cadre of advisors that the president have who are huge to more establishmentarian thinking. So now to somebody completely outside of it, the establishmentarian thinking can seem kind of you know, strange, but that would be basically, the establishment line would be, we should stay in the Iran deal, but we should also, basically status quo. Right. And, and Mattis is probably a little closer to the status quo than some of the other people in the White House. What was Mattis' involvement in Syria? Mm-hmm. All indications, my sources are, that Mattis was more gun-shy about taking 
some sort of action this swiftly and was also a little bit more deliberative on the intelligence that right. uh, Assad was behind this attack in the Damascus suburb. But it's not like Mattis was kicking and screaming on it. At the end of the day, he is an ex-general, views his job as to help craft, guide the president, but not overrule him. And if when the decision was made to strike Syria, Mattis, as the uh, you know the head of the Department of Defense, helped execute the president's will. Okay. And one thing that's been of interest in London, because we recently had the Saudi Crown Prince, right. and Bill Salman, in Britain, and then he went to America and then France, and there's a lot of speculation that Saudi Arabia was very influential in this decision. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's very complicated. There's a couple moving parts. The president likes the Saudis. Yeah. The president's family, Jared Kushner, likes the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, the Saudis are long-standing traditional partners of the United States. Mm. That being said, I think the Saudis are on worse footing with this White House than they were a year ago. Mm. There's a general impression and consensus that they sort of overshot and abused their mandate from the Trump administration. Mm. I think the best example of that is they, they in, initiated the blockade of Qatar last yeah. uh, summer, and Trump called essentially the emir of Qatar were, you know, a terrorist financier yes. on Twitter. I, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but that's essentially what he said. We call it um, Qatar. Just yeah. Sort of yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and look, uh, Qatar is obviously involved in some questionable financial practices, yeah. um, but that they're very much trying to make amends for and reform. But, you know, today uh, or earlier this week, while the Syria stuff's going on, while this James Comey stuff is going on, the yeah. ex-FBI director, very quietly, Trump received the emir of Qatar at the White House. So I didn't mean to distract from it. No, no, no. The, no, the, the, the point is that it's not like the Saudis were the number one reason why we we're doing it. That being said, mm. Saudi Arabia has impressively pivoted towards the U.S.-Israel access as much as it can in the Middle East. Mm. Obviously, historically, the Arab countries have this tough time mm. with the Israel issue. The Crown Prince, in particular, has worked more closely with the Israeli government. And so much so that uh, I believe his father, the king, had to phone the Palestinian leadership to assure them, you know, that yes. you know everything's not being blown to smithereens with their traditional arrangement. Sure. You were talking about Qatar, Qatar. Yes. And at the State Department, they had a horrifying time when that tweet went out because that went against about Trump's tweet about. Yes. Yes. Uh, so uh, Mr. Mr. Tillerson was quite keen on getting Rex Tillerson, the now mm. the ousted Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, was quite keen on resolving that dispute quickly and amicably between the parties, yeah. which made him not the number one favorite in Dubai and Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So as it relates to Qatar, mm. um, the impression is that the Gulf allies are more excited about Mr. Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, mm. who is now nominated to be Secretary of State. But of course, you know, we'll have to see. His confirmation hearings are going on this week. Yes. And he'll be confirmed. He is likely to be confirmed. It is not a certitude. Um, I hesitate to put a percentage on it. Somebody asked me yesterday, is Mike Pompeo doing quite well at the confirmation hearings? Or is he in the hot seat? And I say both. He's an incredibly professional, competent, capable politician. 
He's not going to make mistakes. I'd be very surprised to see him make mistakes. That being said, the political environment around this nomination is cloudy. The Republicans have lost some seats or a seat in the Senate, so their narrow margin to get their people through. Mm. And, you know, the White House has got to really ratchet up a quite sophisticated whip operation to ensure he goes through. What is really holding it up is that one of the big Republicans, Rand Paul, Mm. is opposed to his nomination. He is also opposed to the nomination of Mr. Pompeo's successor, Gina Haspel, and his principal reason for opposing both is their ties to U.S. neoconservatives and past support of intense interrogation or, as some would say, torture. Right. If we could just go back to the, the strikes, there's been a lot of emphasis on the limited nature of it. Yes. And this sort of leads people like me to think it's sort of just performative foreign policy, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a kind of almost a bit of virtue signaling in, in foreign policy. You do something for the sake of doing it rather than for any strategic purpose. Is that a fair thing to think? So if you're a hardcore anti-interventionist from a perspective like that, mm. you could make the optimistic case for these sort of strikes that they are sort of performative, that they are limited yeah. in scope. That being said, the people who pose this sort of action are very, very much in arms about it. There was a revolt on the sort of populist right a year ago when we mm. did these strikes. You wrote a piece about this. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, when the, I did write a couple pieces about this. When the United States did these strikes a year ago, there was some opposition on the right, but it was much more quiet. Now it is really loud. I think the real, and I, I keep beating this drum, I think the real signaler of this or the real sign of this is Mr. Tucker Carlson, Mm. who hosts the 8 p.m. slot on Fox News, which is the most powerful slot in American cable television. And a year ago, if you you read between the lines or listened to a few clips that he made about it, it was very clear that he was opposed to the serious strikes. But now it is unambiguous. Mm. On Monday, last Monday, he launched into a rather extraordinary opening monologue in which he not only opposed strikes on Syria, but Mm. questioned the U.S. intelligence consensus. On that, what we call the populist right, there is a a strong anti-interventionist streak, but do you think there's a danger that the people who do that are very loud on Twitter, but actually a lot of people who would vote for Trump, who liked what he said about foreign policy, also like John Bolton, and they like, you know, sounding tough and taking dramatic action? There there definitely is sort of a... uh, I don't want to deign to enter Donald Trump's mind, but if you look at what he says, there's clear anti-interventionist impulses, but there is also a sort of militarism toward, towards him. Yeah. He likes these tough guys. Yeah. He likes action. And I think some of that with Assad is he feels almost insulted, like he had made it clear, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But no, I, I do think that there is a clear anti-interventionist rising tide on the American right. Mm. No question about it. I think there was that, particularly before the rise of ISIS, if you ask Mr. Rand Paul, who I mentioned before, but who ran for president in 2016, his campaign was um, uh, apocalyptically disorganized, in my opinion. But they will tell you that the reason they think he lost is that, you know, once Americans were getting beheaded again in the Middle East, Mm. this this, this sort of anti-interventionist impulse sort of abated. That being said... But is it just that perhaps these politics, you may like them, lots of people may like them, there's not really a popular mandate for them? For... For for libertarian anti-interventionists? Well, there's definitely not a popular mandate for uh, 
libertarianism right now. Yeah. Uh, but I do think there might be a popular uh, uh, appetite for anti-interventionism. Uh, yeah, a sort of uh, realism. Uh, uh, real, yeah, I mean, this is a... Yes, realism is the sort of umbrella term for anyone who's not uh, a liberal internationalist or an open neoconservative or uber hawk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, but realism is a huge, huge tent. Yes. Um, and so realists generally agree what they hate, not what they want. Right, yeah. right. So, but no, I think I think there is definitely a that's that's a that's a big rising tide, and I think the real flashpoint moment on this is uh, February two thousand sixteen. Donald Trump, then candidate Donald Trump, mm. was running for president. Uh, he got into a brutal debate with Mr. Jeb Bush, the brother of the former president and the son of the former president, obviously, and the Bush family in South Carolina, sort of a deep southern state, mm. is still quite popular in, the, I mean, you know, over 70% approval rating. Yes. And Trump not only attacked the Bush family... He in, called them liars. In the most caustic terms imaginable. Yeah. And he, you know, attacked the Iraq War. He attacked a lot of our more bellicose foreign policy impulses. And he won the election uh, going away in South Carolina and then he yes, of course, I, I of course, do I remember at the time a lot of the reaction in the media was to say you know you can't say this sort of thing about uh, yeah for an American president this is unacceptable this is sort of left-wing talk yeah but actually his popularity sort of zoomed up even further yeah yeah I mean the immediate reaction was um you know f- quite foolish yeah uh, I thought so at the time um, and it only looks more ridiculous in hindsight but I mean Donald Trump won among U.S. military officers and, and families. Now, the Republican usually, at least in my lifetime, has always won um, among them, or at least since at least since nine eleven. Um, but I mean, I think if you, especially if you look at who enlisted people were voting for during uh, the previous elections, someone who always did quite well was Mr. Paul's father, Ron Paul. There is like definitely an anti-war current within the U.S. military generally. And, you know, a lot, I mean, I'll focus it. Mr. Trump took his message to a lot of these sort of Rust Belt towns, a lot of these sort of Midwestern or Mid-South or Deep Southern uh, states. And he said, you know, look, we've been sending your boys uh, and girls around the world with no clear purpose. And meanwhile, your towns have been completely obliterated by these terribly mangled and poorly negotiated free trade deals. Hmm. It, it, it really was a sort of Ross Perot, neo Buchananite campaign, but with the um, infrastructure of a major political party behind it as opposed to a third party. I think we'll end it there, but thank you very much for talking to us. Please do it again, perhaps the next uh, phase of a, a, a military strike. Yeah, yeah, I mean, who's to say? It's, uh, it's, it's day-to-day around here, and uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Thanks again, Kurt.